We are going to dive into our passage for today. We're in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 to 40. Uh, we're tra- trekking through passage by passage, Matthew's gospel. Uh, it's been a wonderful journey so far. Uh, each week, you sort of don't know what's going to come. Um, and then you're just encouraged and blessed and challenged all the same. For today's passage, um, Matthew 15, 21 to 39 uh, from the ESV translation, uh, Anita Hahn is going to read it for us. So thanks, Anita. Over to you. Okay, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet. And he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. They glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Thank you, Anita. Well done. Let me pray. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. In his commentary on this passage, uh, the writer Douglas O'Donnell says this, The Bible is not like a doctoral dissertation. Let's start by defining our terms. Rather, it is like a motion picture. Let me show you how it looks. And I think, thought that was a great line because that really encaptures what it's been like going through Matthew's gospel. Uh, so much of what we're learning doesn't come from 
clear, explicit, you know, point by point teaching. Uh, but often it's coming from viewing the scenes and, and watching and absorbing and seeing what happens and having to kind of draw the inferences. And as we come to today's passage, uh, the, the camera pans in on two incredible scenes. This scene of this desperate uh, Gentile Canaanite woman pleading uh, for healing for her daughter. And the scene of hundreds and maybe thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people coming to be healed by Jesus. And then another amazing scenario of mass miraculous feeding. And so as we look at these two pictures, uh, what Matthew is trying to do for us is help us to see what it looks like uh, to be a follower of Jesus, to see what Jesus's plan is for people and for the world. And in our text today, in particular, we're going to see two things, two things, a model of faith, number one, and a motivation for mission. We're going to see a model of faith in camera one, and then camera two, a motivation for our mission. And uh, the title, if you'd like to write down a title, is Humble Faith, comma, Hungry World. Humble Faith, Hungry World. So let me jump into point number one and see what the camera has to say, see what Matthew's trying to highlight for us. Point number one, a model of humble faith, a model of humble faith. If we remember what happened in the last episode, uh, Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders and they were most outraged that he doesn't wash his hands like they do, uh, that he hasn't followed the traditions of the elders and that basically he and his disciples are unclean as a result. They're not as holy as they could be. Jesus challenges them back and, and reveals the true problem with us is not outside in, but inside out. Uh, that each one of us, every human born has an inside problem. Our hearts are all messed up. We love the wrong things. Uh, we do the wrong things. We think the wrong things. And that's what makes the mess in the world. And the only way to cleanse our hearts is not by washing our hands, uh, but is actually by coming to Christ in faith. He washes us. And it's a great picture of what it means to become a Christian. I heard it explained like this in a book recently, uh, Catching Men Alive by Douglas Wilson's father, Jim. He said, when I became a Christian, it was like I had a bath on the inside. Uh, and then I've been joyful ever since. Uh, becoming a Christian is like having a bath on the inside. It cleanses you from the inside out. And so Jesus breaks these traditions and he, you know, basically breaks the Pharisees and, and uh, uh, puts it on them that they have actually broken God's law. And then in verse 21, we see that the, there's, the disciples go with Jesus on a retreat. Uh, they actually rest. Uh, Jesus didn't spend every minute of his ministry working. He actually takes the disciples away from the action and they don't just go on a rest. They go like far away, all the way east to Tyre and Sidon. And this is the only recorded instance we have of Jesus leaving um, really the, the, the Jewish territory and going into strictly proper Gentile lands. Uh, and so he goes out with the disciples on a retreat. Um, and so it's even just that as a little, as an aside, a good principle for us that we need to rest. Uh, that's what Sunday is meant to be, a day of rest where we say, uh-uh, no more work, no more checking emails, no more doing this stuff. I'm just going to rest and retreat. 
And in fact, it's likely that Jesus and the disciples didn't just go away for like a day or two. Uh, it's, it's most likely, as we'll see later on in this text, that they go on a really long retreat, months and months and months. Nonetheless, as always happens, when Jesus goes on a retreat, uh, he gets interrupted. And uh, we've seen that time and time again. Jesus goes to a desolate place and then people turn up. Jesus goes to a desolate place and then the disciples get stuck in a storm. Jesus goes again and then the crowds follow, the Pharisees follow. And in our story today, um, the camera zooms in on this Gentile woman who comes to Jesus for healing. Um, but it's not just any type of woman uh, that comes to Jesus for healing. Uh, it's She's described as a Canaanite woman. And Matthew, this is the only time this word is actually used in the New Testament. And Matthew is deliberately and explicitly trying to draw our attention to the fact that she is not Jewish, <laughs> that she is, of all peoples, a Canaanite. The Canaanites were the people that Israel first conquered after they left their exodus, and they came into the promised land and drove out the Canaanites as God's judgment upon them for rejecting him. And so to describe her not just as a Gentile or a foreigner, but as a Canaanite, is to set this whole movie scene in the drama of God's plan for the world between Jew and Gentile, uh, God's people and the nations. And as she comes, it's this incredible scene. Uh, Matthew zones in on it so we can see the drama. You know, this woman, she comes uh, crying out. The the verbs there indicate she didn't just say, oh, help. Uh, the, the, The original language indicates that she's crying out continually, pleading and pleading, Jesus, would you heal my daughter? She is at home. She's possessed by a demon. Um, I cannot even imagine the torment that this poor girl was in. Can't imagine what it would be like as a parent to see your child be taken over by an outside force, completely powerless to this force, no ability to drive out a demon. And so she cries out, but she doesn't just cry out continually. She cries out with this incredible um, exclamation. She says in verse 22, oh, Lord, son of David. So she has this idea, even though Jesus is well out in Gentile country, that he is a special person, that he is potentially even the Messiah, the promised one. Uh, She's got some idea of his special mission. So she begs and wails and cries for help. Yet you would have noticed in Anita's beautiful reading in verse 23 that Jesus meets her desperate cry with silence. doesn't really fit our picture of Jesus up until this point, does it? Every time people have come to him in faith, he's instantly healed them. His heart has over, uh, overflowed in compassion, but here he ignores her request. So much so that the disciples beg him to either send her away or like heal her and send her off. Like they don't have much compassion. They're like, stop the crying woman, please just heal her, Jesus, and get rid of her. Let's go back to the retreat, uh, which probably how I would have reacted if I was there. Then Jesus surprises us again in verse 24 and says just to the disciples, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Basically, she's not in my job description, guys. Sorry, not going to do it. But then Matthew zones in again with her coming with a persistent request. She kneels before Jesus in verse 25 and begs on her knees. Picture this scene. 
you know, she's crying out on her knees before Jesus. And she says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And Lord, have mercy. Such a desperate plea. Then again, Jesus surprises us with an even more shocking reply. Verse 26. It's hard to imagine Jesus saying this to a human being, let alone this scenario, but here it is. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, Jesus says in verse 26. What? (laughs) It seems like Jesus is being, uh, at best, rude, if not racist. Uh, Dogs is what the Jews used to call Gentiles. And now Jesus says to this woman, no, I'm I'm not going to heal your daughter. It's not right for me to give to you, a dog, what is meant for the children. That is the blessings of the kingdom that are meant for God's people. I'm not going to give them to you because you're not part of it. Now, it looks wrong, uh, but as we zone in, I think if we look at it with different eyes, we'll see that it's not the case. Um, everything we know about Jesus's character doesn't accord with this. We've already seen in Ma- Matthew chapter 8 that he doesn't treat the Gentile uh, centurion like this. So we've got to think, all right, this isn't our ca- Jesus's character. What's actually going on? Well, it's most likely that he's setting up this whole situation as a teaching moment for the disciples and a test for her faith. So Jesus is deliberately not healing, deliberately being provocative to set it up as a teaching moment for the disciples who've just been like, get rid of this Gentile woman, and as a test for her own faith. Is she just in it for the healing or is she just throwing out, oh, yeah, Messiah, son of David, you know, just heaping up terms? Well, let's see what happens. One commentator um, says that as we imagine this scene, we we need to imagine a twinkle in Jesus' eye. Or another commentator, William Barclay, said, we can be quite sure that the smile on Jesus' face and the compassion in his eyes rob the words of all insult and bitterness. And I think he's right. I think that as we, if we were to see Jesus with the camera lens, I think we would see that there's more going on in his face than these words seemingly represent. They look shocking, but I think, I think there's probably more to the story. He's testing her by using this well-known distinction. And when we see her response, we'll see that even though she's desperate for his help, she still has a sense of humor. <laughs> she's in on the test. She, she's very clever. She picks up on it and dishes it back, very much unlike the Pharisees who've got nothing to say when Jesus challenges them. She gets it. Look at verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, <laughs> yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Isn't that a wonderful and witty reply? She's picked up on the kind of interchange that Jesus is having. Her argument is basically this. Yes, I grant it. Israel are the chosen people. I'm a Gentile. I'm an outsider. I get it. The Messiah has come to save Israel and the benefits of the kingdom ought to go to them. I get it. But even in a normal king's court, the pet dogs get to eat the scraps. So please give me some kingdom scraps for my daughter 
for my daughter and I who are but dogs. So she uses the dynamic and kind of puts this plea back to Jesus and saying, look, even in the king's courts, the dogs get fed the children's scraps. They're not meant to get it first, but they get the, the over, they get the, the things that crumble out over. And now we know that she's really on the money because look at how Jesus replies in verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. <laughs> you know, no one in all of Matthew's gospel gets this commendation. The Pharisees are scolded and judged for having no faith. The disciples are uh, uh, put up with, in a sense, and chided for having little faith. Uh, the centurion was um, commended for having a faith greater than anyone in Israel. But this Canaanite woman in the outskirts of Tyre and Sidon gets the greatest commendation in all of the book of Matthew for her faith. He says, O woman, great is your faith. Now, it's an expressive and, uh, you know, categoric description that your faith is amazing. It's beyond comparison. It is great faith in the most surprising of places and in the most surprising of people. And it's a beautiful um, aspect of Jesus's ministry that often it's the, the least likely, the most unworthy people that get the greatest amounts of faith and grace from God. So why is this story here? I mean, if anything, it makes us question Jesus's character. It seems a bit strange. Well, I believe that Matthew has included this story because he wants us to look at this woman and want to be like her. She's here as a model for our own faith. Matthew could have passed over this scene, uh, could have not included it, didn't need it, wasn't necessary, but he includes it because he's teaching us what it means to be someone who has great faith. Um, if great faith was a product, she'd be the uh, ambassador. She'd be the one on those ads saying, you know, <laughs> you know, so-and-so recommends this product because, look, she's a cheater. It's like the gold medalist. They always find some way of getting into an extra ad or some kind of ad. And we go, yeah, I should buy chewing gum because that gold medalist won chewing gum. Um, Matthew's putting her, oh, not one chewing gum. That gold medalist eats chewing gum, therefore I should eat it. Uh, Matthew's putting this woman here so that we can go, wow. She, she's the gold medalist of faith in the whole gospel. I want to be like her. When I grow up, I want to be the Gentile woman. Uh, that, you know, that's, that's the kind of way we're meant to react to this story. And like I quoted at the beginning, uh, Douglas O'Donnell says that the Bible is not like a doctrinal dissertation. Let's start by defining our terms. Rather, it's like a motion picture. Let me show you how it looks. And so when the Bible wants to show us what great faith looks like, that we're meant to imitate and copy, holds out this example of a Gentile woman. So if you and I want to be judged great in our faith, what can we learn from her? What can we learn from this remarkable woman? I want to say this, a great faith is a humble, hungry faith. 
I think two things you could say, if you want to be someone who is of great faith, she models that a great faith is a humble and hungry faith. Or putting it differently, a great faith is a dependent and desperate faith. One commentator, Tasker, wrote about her humility in this way, her humble faith. He says, she does not stay to argue that her claims are as good as anyone else's. She does not discuss whether Jew is better than Gentile or Gentile as good as Jew. She does not dispute the justice of the mysterious ways by which God works out his divine purpose, choosing one race and rejecting another. All she knows is that her daughter is grievously tormented, that she needs supernatural help, and that here in the person of the Lord, the son of David, is one who is able to give her that help. And she is confident that even if she is not entitled to sit down as a guest at the Messiah's table, Gentile dog that she is, yet at least she may be allowed to receive a crumb of the uncovenanted mercies of God. (laughs) A beautiful description. We are to marvel at her humility and model ourselves off it. So a great faith is a humble faith. But a great faith is also a hungry faith. And William Barclay says this, and I love, I love this first little section. This woman had indomitable persistence. She had indomitable persistence. She was undiscourageable. I love that as well. Not even sure that's a word. She became, uh, she came because Jesus was not just a possible helper. He was her only hope. She came with a passionate hope a clamant sense of need, and a refusal to be discouraged. This woman had the one supremely effective quality in prayer. She was in deadly earnest. She could not and must not and need not take no for an answer. Now, if you or I were counselling her, if we were there at the time, we would have said, sister, it's okay. Clearly, it's not the Lord's will. Um, Maybe stop praying. Maybe change the, the prayer Um, you know, clearly he's not moving in the way uh, that you want. Maybe just, you know, submit to his sovereignty. It's not for now. But instead, she keeps going, and it's through her indomitable persistence that she prevails. And we know that the Lord loves this because he gives her the greatest commendation that's given to anyone in this entire book about faith. He says, your faith is great because she is humble. She knows she doesn't deserve it. She's hungry. She's desperate and dependent. She goes to Jesus because she uh, Jesus is her only hope. She goes to Jesus because he is the only one that can help her, and she will not leave until she gets what she needs. And so the camera zooms in on this humble woman as a model for you and I. She's our model. So, friends, we ought to seek to be like her, humble and hungry, crying out, I don't deserve this mercy, but, oh, Lord, would you act? Would you do this? Would you give me grace for this? Would you save my friend? Would you help me to parent? Would you, would you, would you, would you, would you? And we keep, we argue with the Lord. We reason with the Lord. We use the promises of God with the Lord, and we keep going back, and we keep going back in persistence like this woman trusting, 
knowing full well that he can at any moment with a word do the healing, uh, get the breakthrough that we are looking for. And for anyone who is not yet a follower of Jesus, if you are listening in, you are amongst us, or um, you are in amongst the Zoom right now, she's a model for how you can come to Jesus. You don't need to be religious. You don't need to be churchy. Uh, you don't need to be saint-like. Once you realize who Jesus is, that he is the Lord and Savior, that he loves you, that he wants to cleanse you from the inside out, once you know who he is, you can just come right on up like the Gentile woman did with none of the, you know, none of the things that all the Jews were doing at the time and just throw yourself before him and plead, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So that is point one, a humble faith, a humble faith, a model, sorry, of humble faith. So we've seen the surprising faith of this Gentile woman. It's now matched by the surprising love of Jesus for the Gentile world. And that leads us to the second scene in this movie today, a motivation to reach a hungry world, uh, a motivation to reach a hungry world. And in this section, we're going to look at verses 29 to 39. And we're going to see a motivation for us to step out in humble faith like this woman to reach a hungry world. These verses that Anita read paint a picture of a hungry crowd, a hungry crowd, a crowd that is hungry for healing. If you look at verse 30, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. Uh, the, the scene has changed. Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark tells us that now they've moved down to the Decapolis, another Gentile territory, and a great crowd has formed. And again, all the, um, the, the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute. Uh, and Matthew specifically chooses those terms because they reference back to a passage in Isaiah chapter 35, and it's showing that there's this link across the Old and New Testaments. And they are hungry for healing. But then after being with Jesus for three days, uh, they're also hungry for food. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. So they're hungry for healing. They're hungry for food. And you see Jesus's compassion um, demonstrated again. And just to reiterate, like Jesus with the Gentile woman, he wasn't just being rude or racist. He had compassion and love for her, as we see in this passage. But you might have been thinking, wait a second, when Anita read this passage, haven't we seen this before? You know, a very similar scenario um, as to what happened in chapter 14 with the feeding of the 5,000. If you remember correctly, in chapter 14, crowds of people come to Jesus after he's been on a retreat. They come for healing. He has compassion on them and heals them. And then he feeds them miraculously by multiplying bread and fish. Again, we see like in chapter 14, chapter 15, the disciples don't have any faith that they can do it. And Jesus uses them again to feed the crowds. And then even right at the end, it's the same. He gets into a boat and goes somewhere else. It looks a little bit like Matthew accidentally hit control C and control V. 
And then there's sort of like this duplication and, and maybe got a few details wrong in the process or like what's going on? Well, although there are many striking similarities, there are important differences that ensure that we know that these are two separate events. And if they're two separate events, although very similar, there's no point in recording them unless there's a specific purpose why. And I believe there is. But first, let me show you the differences. Firstly, uh, very different. There's 5,000 people in the first, 4,000 in the second. Uh, the quantity of food is different. Five loaves of bread, two fish in the first feeding, two lo uh, seven loaves and a few small fish in the second. Also, the remainder of baskets is different. 12 in the first, seven in the second feeding. Uh, in the first feeding, the, the, the feeding happened on the same day, whereas this one happened after three days. Even the time of year seems different. You might have noticed in chapter 14, it was like, why did Matthew mention the green grass? Like It was very specific. They sat on the green grass. Well, you'll notice in chapter 15, it just says they sat on the ground. And, and the word there is like earth. So it's like the grass is dead. So the, the time of year has even changed. Even the word for basket is different. In, in chapter 14, it's, it's the Jewish word for a basket that they had with themselves. So they had kosher food. Whereas in chapter 15, the word is a word for a basket that Gentiles primarily used. And that leads us to the most important difference. The crowd are different ethnically. The feeding of the 5,000 was a Jewish crowd. But it's most likely, given the context, that this is a crowd of Gentiles. The clues we have are in verse 31, um, that they, they praise the God of Israel, um, which is a very Gentile way of talking, not a very Jewish way. They praise the God of Israel. And in Mark, we learn that this actually takes place in the Decapolis, which is a Greek and Roman area. And it follows, as we've seen, the healing of a Gentile woman. So we have two very similar looking feasts, but with important differences. In the first feast, Jesus is bringing the feast of the Messiah to God's people. But in the second feast, feast he's opening up the feast to all the nations. So the first feast is just for Israel. That's God's plan, you know, through Abraham that the Israelites would be blessed. But God's plan didn't stay with Abraham. It was always to go to all the ends of the earth. And that's why we have the feeding of the 4,000 recorded here. Matthew includes this feast because the saving work of Jesus bursts all borders. A melodic line that runs through the whole Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, is that all the nations will be blessed through Israel, that all nations will come in and worship God, that the blessings of the kingdom will flow to the ends of the earth. And this feeding is a picture, a foretaste of just that. You may remember what Jesus said to the centurion when he healed his servant's daughter in Matthew 8. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this passage here in the middle of Matthew's gospel is a precursor for what's going to take place in Matthew 28. It's preparing the readers and preparing the disciples that the mission of Jesus is going to be to make disciples of all nations, all ethnos all the different types of people. Israel first, yes, but the nations are next and they are included in the feast of the kingdom. And so we are to see this. 
Jesus' love is a love that reaches to the ends of the earth. Jesus' love is a love that reaches to the ends of the earth. He heals all these people that are not included in the covenant and the kingdom. But we see that his love doesn't just extend to heal people hungry for healing or feed people hungry for food. Jesus' love moves on uh, and to bigger and greater things. His plan for the nations, his global mission, isn't just that people will be fed on a hillside, but that on another hill, a hill called Calvary, his body will be torn like bread, his blood will be poured out like wine, and he will offer himself in place of all who come to him, Jew and Gentile, with humble faith. His plan for the nations is not that they would just be fed, but that they would be saved. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. All heaven makes this declaration. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. And who are those people? They are people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them all a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This little feeding on a hillside of the 4,000 is a precursor to the eternal glorious future that we have in store, that all the nations of the earth will feast on Jesus Christ forever, that his blood was spilt for anyone who comes to him like the Gentile woman in faith, that anyone can be included. And so, friends, Jesus' love is a love that reaches to the ends of the earth to save sinners like you and I. This passage is here to remind us, primarily the Jews of the time, that God's plan was bigger than just them. It was going on and on and on to the ends of the earth. And I just want us to bask in this for a second. Look at where we are. You and I are the fruit of this global mission. You and I are the fruit of Jesus' global love for the nations. We are the ends of the earth. We are the dogs. We are the outsiders who've been brought in to eat the crumbs from the king's table. Fix your thoughts on this and remember this. Be like the Gentile woman. Uh, woman. Know your place. And may it lead you to holy joy. <laughs> I cannot Believe I get to sit at the king's table and eat of his bread and his wine. We are not only the fruit of global mission, though, friends, but now we are the means of global mission. We are the fruit of global mission. We are the ends of the earth that have been saved, and we are the means of global mission. The ends of the earth are now to reach the ends of the earth. We're caught up in this great hillside feast. Remember, again, the disciples, um, they, they fed the nations. They were given the baskets of bread and they had to go and give food out to all these Gentiles and, and they weren't comfortable with that. They found it hard. They found it difficult, but Jesus sent them out. And it's the same with you and I. And how I long for us as a church to play even more of a part in this to look around our neighbourhoods and our friends and family and to see hungry and hurting people all around us, to see people starving for purpose 
and meaning and security and hope and joy and satisfaction. To look around and see people that are weighed down by their sin and sorrow and to go and feed them with the bread of Christ, to go and make disciples. And that, oh, that we would be a church that would not just be faithful here on mission to those around us, but we would be a church that sends men and women and children to people unknown, places foreign and strange, places where there are no churches or gospel presence, places that have no bread and wine to share in communion, places that do not know of Jesus Christ for themselves. And perhaps, just perhaps, and I hope it, I hope some of you, some of the faces I can see in this screen, will take part in this global mission. Yes, I'm excited for Parramatta. I've given my life to Parramatta. I've moved to Parramatta and I, the nations are here in Parramatta. But there are still untold millions of people around the world who do not have a local church in their area where they can eat the bread and the wine in communion. And maybe some of us will go. Uh, that's my hope that from this church, we would be raising up disciple-making disciples and sending them out to partner with Sovereign Grace Churches, to start new Sovereign Grace Churches, to partner with other denominations and mission agencies to bring the bread and uh, body of Jesus Christ all over the world to feed the hungry nations with Christ. But that will never happen unless we start here. That will never happen unless we start now. That's why we're currently wanting to run Alpha Online. I'm jealous for us to be a part of the great mission of God in the world. I want to be a part of it, and I want you to be a part of it also. And the first step to global mission is next door. It's that person on your phone, that contact that you need to just text and reach out to and say, hey, how are you? How are you going in the lockdown? I've got this awesome course that my church is running called Alpha. I reckon you'd love it. Uh, it, it's so encouraging. It's going to tell you about true meaning, hope, and faith in this life. Would, would you want to do it with me? Now, you might be thinking as we talk all about mission, like, come on, like, seriously, Riley, why are we doing this now? It's lockdown. My life sucks. I'm barely making it through. I'm terrified of the virus. I'm terrified of the vaccine. I'm terrified of the government. I'm terrified of everyone disobeying the government. Now is not the time for mission. Now is the time for care. Well, friends, my job as a pastor is not to make your life easy. My job is to help you fulfill God's calling and purposes for your life. And one of the great purposes of your life is to make disciples. When we engage in mission, proclaim the gospel, we are directly aligned with God's purpose and will. Like a fish needs water to swim in, to live and thrive, a disciple of Christ needs to be making disciples in order to live and thrive. If you are wondering why you are lacking joy and peace, power in your life right now, perhaps it's because you're so focused on yourself and you're not looking out to the plight of others. Mission has a wonderfully freeing effect on your souls and your problems. Mission has a wonderfully freeing effect 
on your own soul and on your problems as we reach out with the bread of life. So I want this little hillside section to motivate us for mission. I want us to see that Jesus' love extends to the ends of the earth. It has drawn us in. We get to feast at the table. And now let us go like the disciples, handing out bits of bread to a hungry world. So that's point number two, a motivation to reach a hungry world. Well, in closing, it's no accident that we came to this text today. It was an accident on my behalf. Um, I had no idea at the beginning of the week that this is where the sermon would end. I had no idea what the meaning of the passage was, to be honest. Uh, I had no idea that we'd be planning Alpha and it would coincide with a text like this that points us to the global mission of God to reach out. But I'm so glad that it has. Because as we prepare to step out in faith to invite people to Alpha and to hear the gospel and to share it with people, to, to go and buy coffee for someone and go for a walk and, and take a, von- a step, a step of faith, don't we need this passage? Don't we need this picture of that humble Gentile woman coming towards Jesus and saying, I ain't got much, but I know I need you. So let me encourage you. Let's have a humble faith to reach our hungry world. Let's have and seek to be like that gentle woman, having a humble faith to reach our hungry world. Crying out, asking for grace and power to do what we feel is impossible. To reach out, to text that person, to call them and expecting expecting God to meet us in it, not giving up in prayer until we get the desired outcome like that Gentile woman. The idea of stepping out in mission might terrify you, uh, and it does to me, and we are so much more like the disciples than that humble woman, I think. The disciples, again, when Jesus says, let's feed them, they're like, we don't have any bread. Like, But Jesus fed five, like 20,000 people through you not that long ago, and you've already forgotten. But um, isn't that like us? Isn't that like you and I? We so quickly forget how good God is, how powerful he is, how much he wants to save people. And we just, we our, you know, our energy and our faith depletes. So would this little picture of the Gentile woman prompt you to be like, oh, I want to be like her. And may it fill you with this vision of like, okay, I'm going to keep coming back for grace and help in time of need. And then let's go out looking And seeing, oh, hungry people, hungry world, they need the bread of Christ. And let's invite them. Let's tell them the good news. If they won't come on Alpha, just tell them the gospel. If they will come on Alpha, Alpha Alpha will tell them the gospel. Um, And it'll be great joy when we see new disciples added in. I can't wait for in the next three to four months when there's new people on this screen. Hopefully we're not in lockdown, we're in real time. But there's new Christians in our church that don't know how to follow Jesus And you guys are going to be the ones being the model like the Gentile woman. They're going to be like, I don't know what a Christian's like. And they're going to look at Doug. They're going to look at Anita. They're going to look at Mick and Sam and and Joe and Prav and and Doug, uh, Doug, David and Karina. uh, And they're going to go, oh, that's what it's like to be a Christian. That's what it's like to have faith. And you guys are going to become part of the story. So I'm going to stop there. A model for humble faith a motivation to reach a hungry world. We need a humble faith to reach a hungry world. Let's pray. 
Lord God, I pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Uh, would you help me and my friends to be like that beautiful Gentile woman crying out in humility and hunger for you to work? God, we plead that you would help us to actually fulfill the calling on our lives to make disciples of the nations. Would it start with those who are next door to us and then extend across the world? I cannot wait for the day when we are sending out people, perhaps never to see them again, um, to go and share the gospel, to partner with gospel works around the world. And I cannot wait, Lord, to see who you will save through this Alpha course and who we will get to teach them all about you and see them leaping and dancing and praising their God. In Jesus' name, amen.